0: This podcast is sponsored by Collins. High quality primary and secondary resources for both students and teachers. Collins will help you deliver a knowledge-rich and ambitious geography curriculum. Take a look at their range of atlases, revision guides and workbooks too. Jogpod listeners get 25% off Collins Geography resources until the end of June 21. Simply head to collins.co.uk forward slash jogpod and enter the code jogpod at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Hello there, welcome to another Jogpod podcast. Today I'm talking to Professor Johanna Waters and Dr Maggie Leung. Now then, Johanna, you're a professor of human geography at University College London and Maggie, an associate professor at Utrecht University. Today, I must admit that this is, a, this is an area I didn't know very much about. So it's been really interesting reading about it. We're going to explore geographies of education because it's a research interest for both of you. And you've worked on a number of papers together. It's as far as I understand it, it's essentially it's students moving to another country for schooling. And in particular, or we're not just going to focus on that, we'll talk about cross-border schooling, uh, where children are involved in a commute a- across one country to another. Um, so thank you both for joining me together. It's going to be fascinating.
1: Thank you, John. Nice to meet you.
0: Before, before we discuss international students specifically, can can you just talk us through, in general, about mobilities of students?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll just kick off. So... Um... Broadly, students are more mobile than they've ever been in the history of the world, so, and at different levels, so higher education, tertiary education, secondary education, primary education, preschool. Across, across the board, um, we have more mobility. We tend to so statistics on this tend to tend to be collected at tertiary level. So the OECD, for example, um, famously collect these annual statistics on the numbers of um, international students moving annually. Uh, the latest statistics from them for 2018 it's over five million. Uh, tertiary level students kind of moving across borders. So going um, to another country from their country of citizenship or country of birth uh, for um, tertiary level education. And this compares to the 1970s, where there was less than uh, a million. Um, So it has increased a lot over the past sort of 40, um, 50 years. And there's also kind of, as well as being like an empirically interesting uh, question, there are conceptual questions that academics are grappling with, particularly around the question of why. You know, why are students choosing to go to another country, cross borders for their education, um, and also around the provision of infrastructure supporting this mobility. So, why are countries themselves, in terms of think of it as a push pull thing, you know. Um, why, why are stu- students drawn to countries overseas at the same time? Why are other countries kind of pulling them there? You know, what are the infrastructures that are directing student mobility, that are facilitating student mobility? And we can maybe get into some of that a little bit later. Um, so that, that's from the kind of student mobility side. I think Maggie might have um, some thoughts on the program issue of programme mobility
2: yeah yeah Joe. Maybe I also want to add um, a few words about the student moving mm-hmm. indeed you know when we think about student mobility, we think about international student mobility um, so you know uh, young people usually uh, rather privileged background who can pay the tuition move across the ocean and the continents to go to school to study um, and in the in the literature indeed we we look at it sort of in a separate uh, you know, separate system of mobility, but we all not forget. Of course, there are a lot of uh, students and young children. They move in within country. You no, know, sometimes also quite large distance to go to school, and that is part and partial of a much the mobile mobile world we are living in. Think about if parents are mobile because you know they are workers or you know people invest and you know they bring their family along. You know, there's all these other. Um, Other mobility flows, I think we we can, you know, or we should, you know, sort of consider together with student mobility, they they are not there in isolation. And yeah, indeed, no, like if we want to think about geographies of education, um, mobility, we often also think of people moving, but uh, Joe and I have been working also on uh, our research. uh, Some of our research is indeed on the movement of uh, non-human components of the education system. Mm -hmm. So let's say the programs, Uh, So we've studied a transnational education program, uh, British programs offered in Hong Kong. So students who become sort of international students uh, don't have to leave or they're not allowed to leave. You know, you just stay in Hong Kong and then study there and you'll get a degree uh, from the UK. Uh So these, the mobility has, uh, you know, other things are mobile then. The program mobile meaning maybe some of the teachers are mobile, but for sure the curriculum has made mobile. Um, and other resources, some are more mobile than the others. So in our research, we're trying to really see uh, all kinds of things being mobilized. At the same time, quite some things are stuck. You know? So it is uh, a lot of assumption that, you know, when people move, when things move, education moves, then credential might move that come along with it. Mm-hmm. And then indeed these, some of these are, uh, don't always translate that uh, have interested us in our research.
0: It's had an interesting impact in Sheffield because uh, when I first moved from teaching to go to the Geographical Association, the the headquarters of the GA is in what you might call the twilight area of Sheffield. It's located in a factory unit. And uh, there were a lot of derelict factories around where we were when I first started at the GA. There was a huge rebuilding programme and uh, a lot of student flats went up. And the whole area now is, is really dominated by Chinese students. There's a, a shop down the road with a um, with Chinese sign outside, and you can buy some amazing things down there that you wouldn't, get, you wouldn't have got in the place before because it was a sort of twilight zone. Hardly anyone lived in the area. And now it's, it's, the place has changed hugely. Mm. I think the BBC said something like a, uh, it was a 34% rise in the last five years, it's certainly made a, an impact on on Sheffield, and I'd not I'd not really thought about the, the geography of it all. But it's it's pretty fascinating thinking about why people move, um, and it's complex, I'm sure. <laughs> so, what's driving the change? Why is that? Why is it happening?
1: Can I just say something just in response to the, your Sheffield point, John, as well? Because students are attracted to cities, and they are attracted to particular urban areas Um, and I think sometimes the literature at least sometimes the sort of uh, the level of debate is often around the nation state I mean Maggie drew attention to in-country mobility which is very important but also we tend to think about students moving from one country to another but often students will move from one place it could be a rural area to a city somewhere else Um, and yes students are consumers as well and students have a massive impact On the places that they land you know they live there they there's there's a there's a debate around studentification so the way in which students transform um urban areas through their consumption practices and habits and so on and so on and international students exactly they exactly as you said um they do have this quite profound impact on 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 the kinds of shops available and the leisure services available. Um, and I think often we forget that, you know, in, in in these conversations. It's often, it's often these conversations are often had at a kind of national level. Um, but your question was, you know, why why are they moving? Before you get to the why, also indeed
2: I pick on what she also uh, referred to, this migration or mobility infrastructure. Um, and, and it is uh, also part of it, right? There is quite a business surrounding yeah. connected to student mobility. And I think what, John, you were talking about you know, in these shops and whatnot, no? That's a sign of it. But not to forget also the agency, you know, that paved the way for students to go there. And when they go, there maybe also some of the graduates who, are, you know, somehow staying there become the investor yeah? or the shopkeeper of these restaurants or whatever. Uh, maybe parents buy uh, or rent, uh housing you know, and becoming involved in the real estate market. So in, you know, there's all these uh, very interesting linkage that you know, then we can see really on the urban landscape, but some of them we don't even see. Yeah. My I mean, let's, first let's, link
0: actually was, oh. uh, was my, uh, my son wanted to go to, he's a Sheffield Wednesday supporter, but he wanted to go to Sheffield United, which isn't that far away from where the, the GA is located because there was a Chinese team coming over. And he said, we've got to go and watch these. They're absolutely brilliant. And that was before a lot of the building that started. So the, the first links that I knew of, I'm sure there were others, but w- was through the uh, the football, and yeah, and yeah. then these areas started to develop. And there are yeah. there are two particular areas I'm thinking of in Sheffield mm-hmm. that uh, that have changed, as as you said, Johanna, dramatically uh, mm-hmm. for the benefit of of the areas, both of them. Because they were <laughs> they were pretty run down and, and derelict, and the the uh, the amount of wealth that's been brought in mm-hmm. is uh, is quite amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. And as as Maggie said as well, you know, um, as well as transforming the areas through investment, a lot of the students, and I think COVID has actually highlighted this. A lot of international students work in these areas. They work in the cafes. They work in the restaurants. They work in 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 the kinds of jobs that have closed down for a while. And then you see the impact of, of these students, international students that have become stranded because of COVID and because of restrictions and lockdowns and also have no income mm. because a lot of them were actually um, working part time in, in these areas of the city. And, and, you know, this I think COVID's really highlighted um, the fact that students are also workers as well as being consumers. Definitely. Definitely.
2: Also for the non-international students, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, but of course, you know, when you are overseas, let's say far away, uh, without family, then you know your your fallback is different, not necessarily worse or better, but you know who can you can call upon. You know, during this COVID time, there's been a lot of reflection also on you know, the um, what's available for the st- international students. Let's say you know compared to students who have a, in, a family in you know in closer. Uh, neighborhood or distance from
0: them. I'm still not sure why people move, though, because eh? <laughs> you talked about the movement of educational yeah. programs. I, yeah. Uh, w- one of the things I've been doing more recently is visiting teachers in international schools. And I've seen some fantastic American education and fantastic English education going on in countries in Africa and in Asia. They, and it feels to me, as I go into those schools, it feels very much the same as, uh, as a mirror that you might get in an English school. So I, But yes, I, I, I think I mentioned earlier on, this, uh, uh, there's a friend of mine, uh, who are, a cycling friend of mine who works at the university. He's got a, a 16-year-old Chinese girl staying with him, doing her A-levels here and i i I'm not sure I understand what d- drives people to move rather than stay to an international school
1: i mean i can I can try and answer that first out oh, lots of reasons um Within the academic literature, we tend to talk a lot about cultural capital. So people move because they get to acquire embodied cultural capital. What does that mean? Well, it can mean lots of different things. One of the big things is often language acquisition. So it might not be that students, you know, let's say moving to the UK from from a non-English speaking country. they, They may have fairly good English, but if they come and they live in the UK for you know, three, four, five years, whatever, th- throughout maybe some of their secondary education and then in higher education, um, not only will they become fluent in the language, but they also may lose some of their native accent and pick up some more of the kind of so-called, you know, local accents. So there can be some really little subtle types of capital that students pick up which they won't necessarily acquire by going to school and getting an international education at home but there's other things as well attached to the value of travel you know so just by moving overseas you become more independent potentially you know you see you pick up skills around you know you know living in a foreign country uh, negotiating different kind of cultural situations that you won't necessarily be exposed to back home. This idea that international students become more cosmopolitan in nature. So part of the cultural capital that they acquire allows them to, in the future, work overseas, work in different countries, because they pick by living overseas as a student, they've picked up the kind of skills in order to fit in wherever there's you know a lot of it is kind of mythical but nevertheless (laughs) these these are the conversations that um international students have you know um and there's a sense of adventure I think again this is downplayed but I think a lot of international students find it exciting and adventurous to move overseas to live overseas for a time and let's not forget some are actually escaping things as well so some are escaping an oppressive social cultural political situation back home you know, sometimes especially for young women um coming overseas for a period may allow them to escape the kind of gendered expectations and roles that they may have to play um back home so i could go on and on maggie might have some. <laughs> yeah yeah i do have a few points i think uh, joe you have got a, a few,
2: quite a few of the points that I put down, but um, perhaps one point about, John, you were saying, oh, you know, why don't they just stay in the international school, right? I mean, just looking at the econo- economics of that, you know, uh, going to international schools was very expensive. And there are all kinds of uh, market segments, let's say, in international education. Uh, business and uh, and for for some family it's not possible to put their kids in international school let's say in hong kong where i'm from international school some of them are very very expensive um and going overseas could become actually it's a cheaper option and then nice. with the plus right what, what joe was saying you know that you've really been to the uk the us australia uh, at least it's assumed no like what joe was saying the myth of that right what people pick up and um and what's value in the market? You know, we've also studied uh, in our transnational education uh, research where, uh, yeah, students take this TNE program; they have the certificate from you know university X in the UK. Um, but employers thinking, okay, you know, but you got this degree here. Huh? Mm-hmm. Um, do I want to give you a job, or do I want to, you know, give a job to somebody who has really been overseas, right? So, what is value in the job market in the in the society? I think that is also a big part of it. Um, and not to forget also um, related a little bit uh, what Joe was saying that people are trying to leave also, you know, um, there this escape component to that. Um, some families also, um, you know, this student mobility is part of a family project for, you know, also some families, you know, they, you have your kids out there first maybe then come or you know we can buy a flat or maybe you know a part of the business can go and I think some of the research that Joe did earlier on on uh, Hong Kong uh, student mobility and family migration is a good example how student mobility is part of a bigger project and so I think all these factors and of course for each individual family and student the the package of reasons are different but uh, definitely I think there are enough reasons why uh, why, why are people, you know, paying so much money leaving home, uh, going through all that, right, to study overseas? And uh, it's, uh, for some, it's also a, a bit like tourism, right? It's adventure, seeing the world, uh, being cosmo and worldly. You know, that is, of course, very uh, highly valued in our, in our globalised world as well.
0: One thing you said there, Joe, about cultural capital reminded me of a journey I did down from Sheffield to London. And uh, a, a postgraduate Chinese student sat next to me. And I was working on my phone. And uh, he said to me, Are you doing emails on? Uh, is that an iPhone? And I, I said, Yeah. <laughs> and he said, Blimey, it, where I come from, old people like you don't use technology like this. <laughs> <I> thought, what? <laughs> How old do you think I am? Anyway, we, <laughs> we had a long chatter about education, but he was really surprised. So, misconceptions about (laughs) what I was going to be like as as a little old gentleman sitting next to him (laughs) from his perspective well probably from yours as well (laughs) was quite interesting
1: but so we had a
0: fascinating conversation about about education about his time in Sheffield Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah that all of those little nuanced things you wouldn't pick up if you weren't actually immersed in that culture would you?
1: I mean, can I just follow up a little bit on that because about the nuance? Um, Maggie mentioned a project I did years ago for my PhD, and one of the things I did is I was in I was in Hong Kong, and I was talking to graduates and recruiters who who are um, employed, particularly working in the kind of banking sector and and private the private sector in Hong Kong, you know, about why they would hire one person over another person. And when they were talking about students that had been educated overseas, they were saying, you know, I can just tell by looking at them because they dress differently. You know, there's this kind of really interesting, Mm. almost stigma attached to the local graduates. And as Maggie and I know, you know, the, the local graduates are very intelligent, intelligent, very. They've come through a very competitive system to get into, for example, Hong Kong University. But it's those students that have been to the U.S. or been to Canada or been to the U.K., they sound different. They walk differently. They have a different sense of humor. This is what the recruiters were telling me. And I think, you know, these kind of things are very different, difficult to quantify. And they're very nuanced, as you say, John, you know, but they're actually quite important, as Maggie mm-hmm. mentioned, in the labor market, when employers are having to make a, a, a sort of a decision between one candidate and another candidate.
2: Yeah. And not to forget, of course, the social network part of it, right? People exactly. go to school. When I went to the school in the U.S., I went to a pretty good school. And then people once said that, "Well, Maggie, it's not about what you learn there; it's about <laughs> who you get to know." You know. Mm. So, I mean, I was not very good with my networking, but, uh, <laughs> but but that also, you know, is a part of the what one could do, right?
1: Um, Maggie, you do know me, so I think you were. Oh, sorry, good I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I took that back. Please delete this. <laughs> delete that bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm
2: just joking. But it is, you know, this uh, the various ca- kind of capital, right? Um, being, you know, expected, mm-hmm. accumulated, deleted, you know, when people move. Um, hence also, of course, very context specific.
0: I want to follow up because you, you talked there about Hong Kong and, and you've got a, the pair of you have a, a paper coming out in, uh, in geography shortly. Called geographies of education, and were you looking at cross-border schooling between China and Hong Kong? Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: that's fascinating because what you you have a figure, thirty thousand children and young people crossing the border between China and Hong Kong to attend nursery and school. Now I knew about I knew about A-level students and I knew about about university students, but you're talking about some of them really very young, who attend nursery across the border with huge commutes, which really surprised me.
2: Yeah, we have this project on what what's called cross-boundary schooling, uh, because in Hong Kong it's it's a boundary, not a border, but there is a broader uh, phenomenon, no? Like uh, globally, there are also young, also very young children crossing border to school uh, in different geographical contexts, obviously. Um, but, yeah, we spent some time on our project um, on the Shenzhen, Hong Kong case. Yeah, it is quite mind-boggling. Indeed, every day on a school day, not during the COVID time. Uh, but generally, yeah, tens of thousands of these kids go. They Some of them to wake up very early, depending how far they live from the border, of course. Yeah, and then they go through, you know, walking, getting on the bus, crossing the border. And four times, right, because you need to cross... Yeah. Four control points uh, to and from school and go back home. I mean, I, yeah.
1: I, I remember when we did our field work, Maggie, and um, you know, I'd seen photographs of these children and we went to the border in the morning to, to, to actually witness it ourselves. And I remember when we first saw, well, when I first saw the first wave of children coming and I, and I was so excited, but also it, it is a spectacle because there's just so many children and they're all in these groups I think we can attach some um photographs can't we to, to this or for people yes we can. To see yes. see what we're talking about but um you know they're, they, they really have to be there it's one of those things where visually you know there's just waves of kids coming up the stairs and through the stairwells and kind of croc- crocodile fashion you know through down these kind of walkways and they're all following they're in their uniform and they're following their nannies who are you know dressed in particular colors so that they can identify them and yeah it's 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 a thing you know it's 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 an actual i say it's a phenomenon it's it, it's quite um we'd read about it but to actually see see it in action was quite something
2: yeah yeah for all these families it's just part of life right and the pursuance yeah for good education, Um, uh, for an education in Hong Kong that is, of course, it's also quite colonial, right, that is English-based education, the kids learn English more earlier, Um, the different style of teaching and learning in Hong Kong, and some also mention, of course, that, um, you know, my going to school is a preparation for possibly future mobility uh, further away. Yeah. And I think we have to add on these, um, the situation. I mean, it's, it's quite particular. These, most of these kids who um, cross the border, they, they actually are Hong Kong residents. They were born in Hong Kong. And uh, they live, the family live uh, on the mainland side of the border.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: then therefore, they, you know, they uh, for some years now, they, these kids, uh, even though they don't live in Hong Kong, they have the right to get education and health care in Hong Kong. And it's the comparison that, you know, families do and say, well, you know, i will rather also, it's also a class thing, no? Because nowadays, if you have money, you can also go to these international schools in Shenzhen. Eh? Then you also can just skip the Hong Kong thing. So there is a class dimension, in this whole phenomenon. Uh, these are families who are yeah, sort of middle class, lower middle class even, you no, know, um, who uh, cannot afford an international education in Shenzhen but would like to have their kids and they can because the kids were born in Hong Kong. Huh? And therefore these, you know, these pain, no, these perpetual tiredness of these kids having to get up early and traveling for a few hours a day to go to school, is just part of life for a better future, you know? which means first better education. That is of
0: course, I hadn't quite, also thought of cultural. the link with the, with the international schools in Shenzhen. I hadn't thought about that as well. So people sure. wouldn't travel over the borders to go to school there, would they? Or would they? If it was an expensive one, but is there any is there any return where parents with with enough funding might send children to an international school across the border in Shenzhen
2: from Hong Kong? You mean then?
0: Yeah, mm.
2: uh, they? they are probably and they are probably. I, I would think I don't have the data actually for on no, that. We don't know. No, we don't know. But uh, there are also yeah. of course a lot of Hong Kong families who are living in Shenzhen. You no, know? so they're, they're all kind of combination. You know? but uh, the point is uh, I, I you know I, I just want to sort of uh, bring out the fact that now in China there are also quite quite a few more options as yeah, the system indeed. become more neoliberalized and there are investors you know uh, private schools international schools they're also popping up in depending
0: on on the the, the income of the, the parents the choices they make which I suppose is is just exactly what you'd expect Yeah you make different choices depending on your income it's yeah. so it's really a feature of contemporary globalization i suppose isn't it and um and i it, reading your article I, I hadn't really thought that it happens in many other areas as well i, I suppose mexico to the usa yeah. and and there are other examples that you Malaysia
1: is a big one yeah. yeah well can i can i just just follow up one thing maggie said as well in terms of you know the way of life for a family one thing that we discovered I mean we probably would have been aware of it we thought about it but that often there will be two children in the family and one of them will be doing this commute and the other one won't so one of them will have been born in mainland China and the other one born in Hong Kong so even within you, know, you have this decision making going on okay mm-hmm. um, for the child's future and you know they're going to cross the border, um, and then you have another child who just goes to school. Gets up, doesn't get up ridiculously; and he gets up at a kind of normal time, as it were, and just goes to their relatively local school. Um, so that was something else we found really interesting: is the kind of dynamics within these households and the fact that you do have one child do one thing, one child doing something else, and then the conversations as well, potentially of the friction um, between the children. You know, one's got one opportunity going ahead, going forward, and, and the other something else. And we're not really judging to say one's better than the other. Um, but they, you know, going to school in Hong Kong and having Hong Kong residency does open doors or will open doors uh, for these children in, in, differently to their sibling, which I thought was kind of a really interesting, something to reflect on. <laughs>
2: Yeah, this has to do with this um, infamous one-child policy you know, in, in China for so many years, so many years. And uh, so, that, you know, we, we've talked to families with multiple or two kids and the first one was born in China and the second one, if, you know, the second one were born in China, they, you know, they would have to pay a lot of fines, right, in order yeah. to have the kid to have schooling and all the rights to everything. So they say, okay, with this money, I, we can actually go to Hong Kong and so we can have a Hong Kong-born child. And then there he or she can get the education there with all the imagined benefits um and uh, yeah therefore yeah that also brings out how context specific you know this is of course we say yes you know there are also other cross-border education schooling going on but the situation in mexico UN, united states would be very different and, and china hong kong is of course a very peculiar case no, not only about the, the immigration policies, the politics, but also a lot about politics for identity and so on. Um, so yeah, so our case is, is peculiar that way. Yeah.
0: Would I recognise uh, the schooling in Hong Kong? Because they're not international schools then, so I know what that looks like. I've been to Hong Kong, but I only went to university. So as a, what do the students experience? You said it was sort of a colonial, legacy of colonial times. Would I recognise it as an English system, or or is it? Do they put more demands on the students? How does it work?
2: Um, of course, there is still this uh, footprint of the colonial education system, and in Hong Kong, there are different kinds of schools. Yeah, and I, I say that it's colonial that way because English schools, English medium schools, are still considered as better schools. So for kids who can make it, no, and there are then the Cantonese medium schools. Um, so you know, so in the these, the kids that we are talking about mostly, they go to public school. You no, know, that's the only place where they they have the right for free education, and the, these schools are also a mix. You no, know? some schools are mainly mainly just Cantonese, um, and you know, but all kids learn English early enough. You no, know? but in English medium school, of course, you learn all the subjects in English. You no. Know? Mm-hmm except Chinese and, and Chinese literature and things like that. Right. Yeah, and, and it is these, you know, starting so early. And of course, kindergarten also starts with English, right? So for, for parents whom we have talked to, you know, who who are like, well, you know, you know, even if they're a similar offer in Shenzhen, they will consider that as not so authentic, right? So it's just a border, right? So why don't we put the school, the kids over there for again, not better education, a better future. And all the, you know, difficulties are worth it. You know? and
1: English it's also the
2: societal is, value placed you no know, place on education.
1: Yeah, yeah and in English as well, Maggie. So, I mean, yeah. you know, I think it's hard to overstate the value attached to English. And also, okay. as, as Maggie said, attaining English at a young age. So, something that we've not studied but read a lot about is... is um, the movement of uh, very young children from South Korea to the US, which is which is a a very popular movement amongst people that can afford it. Um, And interviews with mothers um, around, well, why why do you do this? It's it's so that the children can pick up language at a young age, because children are more receptive Mm. when they're younger, to picking up language, to learning it fluently, to picking up accent, and so on, and so on. So I think, yeah, the kind of in our conversations with 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 families around the the cross boundary cross border um, issue, the the different types of English that is are, are being taught. It's not that English isn't being taught mm-hmm. in Shenzhen, but it's a you know this idea that getting a certain type of almost like an English English in in Hong Kong, which has this you know this colonial legacy that you know Maggie mentioned. The parents also mentioned the way how
2: uh, you know education is is done right you also let this praise oh you know uh, the teachers in hong kong they you know they teach in a different way they're more open kids learn to be more you know uh, critical they are allowed to ask questions so there are also other reasons but definitely this language this cultural capital of you know moving across the border to an you you know more english more international education is the motivation. But
1: ped- yeah, pedagogical style I think was you know was mentioned quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And again there's a sense in which you know if my my child is tutored or taught in this style of education, that will facilitate them going abroad when they're older, you know, some mentioned, you know, well, actually, if, if, if they have you know, this style of education, it'll be easier for them to go, for example, to the US, you know, for higher education or, 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 or whatever than if they stayed in in mainland China. So there is a kind of, certainly amongst se- several of the families, there's a kind of forward thinking of future, future mm. mobility, you know, this, mm. this will enable my child to be much more mobile in mm. the future when they're older.
0: My data collection just... Anecdotal because I've talked to parents at schools that I visited. One of them was a primary school in Sweden, and the parents had just moved the child well, not just, but they'd been there for about a year. And he said, originally, initially, he really objected to the freedom that the students were given this sort of inquiry approach, which he found uh, wasn't disciplining his daughter well enough at the beginning. And then, as they moved through, um, he said that for the first time, she wants to go to school, and she's really progressing, and have really changed my mind. And that was about the differences in in pedagogy. But I've only I've only just briefly talked. What what methods you've talked about talking to parents? What methods of data collection did you use to uh, to put the paper together and the, the other bits of research that you've done? Do you want me to go, Maggie?
1: Well, we had sure. um, we we had a uh, we had actually two research assistants that worked on different parts of the project with us we had a one um research assistant who um yen who is excellent and who got in touch with by different means families and actually spent some time talking to families we we had very di- we had different methods we had methods of kind of going to the border ourselves you know um of um, you know hanging out a bit actually because you can you can do a lot with observation I think for me you know some of the most valuable bits were actually observing what was going on and just kind of you know taking some photos and 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 taking notes and so on and so on but our our research assistant spent some time with some families you know talking to them um, Mm. about their daily routine Mm. um, about their decision making um, about um uh, you know why why are they doing it because uh, as maggie mentioned it, it it's quite an arduous thing to do actually um on a daily basis it's it's extremely tiring and a lot of sacrifices uh, are made in order to, to to carry out this kind of boundary um schooling so yeah uh, for us you know it was we were both largely qualitative researchers the kinds of data we're interested in is 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 talking to people you know it's not number crunching <laughs> and su- surveying but actually getting much more in depth qualitative um you know information and knowledge about a situation from people who are actually going through it you know we also talked to some teachers we also talked um uh, to some older students i remember maggie we had that one interview with a um an older uh, young adult now but he he yeah. he done Uh, he'd done it for a number of years and had some really interesting kind of retrospective reflections on his experience and actually how it had changed over time Mm. so when he started as a cross-boundary student there were very few students going and I remember Mm. him saying to us it was just me and you know, all these like and the roads were not paved, so
2: yes. <laughs> he had to run was, through was,
1: the mud in his slippers and change
2: was, his real leather shoes. <laughs> it was yeah, just yeah. awful.
1: But then he described what was really interesting because we're we're also interested in the infrastructure around this this kind of um, this system, Definitely. and he he described to us how the infrastructure had changed. So how over time, you know, the border had become more. Um, formalised for cross-boundary students and walkways had been set up for them and special kind of digital passports and all the rest of it. Um, as more and more students were undertaking this commute, then it, in a sense it got easier, but it, but there were more children. Um, and he felt, I suppose, yes, we got this really interesting interview with him where he was reflecting on how it had changed over time because it did increase, you know, it ha- has or had increased... Um, you know, quite dramatically over a sort of a period of 20 years, Maggie, was it? Something like that? Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, well,
2: almost 20 years because he started very young and he was already in a yeah. university. Um, a person who I think who define mobility as part of his life. I, I think I, I can paraphrase him when I yeah. had the interview with him. It was very interesting. Um, back to our methodology, yeah. I mean, sort of quite classic, no? Like interviews, observations, you know, we talk to teachers, parents, um, the uh, students um, but also what I is uh, maybe also interesting for the for the listeners that um, you know there are all, of course other ways of getting you know knowledge uh, about this phenomenon there's a lot uh, in the in the internet you know reporting about it but one part of our research is, is indeed to uh, that union our uh, a research assistant on the mainland side, she signed on, and I also did for part of the time, sign on to some of the WeChat groups. Uh, so the, the parents who talk about, you know, their worries, their lives, their issues, or good things, you know, like in the WeChat group. So you could also do observation in these social media space. And, uh, and in fact, you know, that I think that it's become more normal, right? As our digital life and our so-called real space life are more and more connected. Um, so that is also part of the work that we have done. And so when COVID happened, of course, I also um, did some more follower interviews and check you know, the, the various social media uh, a little more closely and also talk to the, some, uh, one of the teachers who we talked to earlier to sort of update a little bit, you not know, to see what's going on there. Uh, what is, what are the discourse like and how are the, and, you know, people's feelings about the borders being closed and open and things mm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's I, how we. I, do I think there's a set.
0: message here. I think really is for, for A-level students. Joe, you said we're not number crunchers and uh, your, your collection of data qualitatively gives a, a real feel, of the way that people are experiencing that process. Which you don't get if you're just looking at data, well, number data, I mean, mm. and, uh, and and it, it's I suppose it's not surprising it's changed, but you, the experience of a tot, some tiny creature coming through a border at the beginning, everything will be huge. It, we, yeah. We've done work sometimes where we've we've tried to get Y tens, Y elevens, to imagine what a place is like if they're half the size. Mm-hmm. So the wheels of Of buses going past are bigger than you are, so I'm not surprised it's changed. But I do like the idea of this qualitative collection of talking to people, of getting their lived lives and their experiences, because you can't get that in any other in any other way, I don't think. And it's meant it's made for a fascinating paper.
2: Yeah, we learn through talking to people. No, it also raises new questions, and I think in these kind of research, it also makes us reflect. Oh, you know, are we even asking the most relevant questions
1: exactly
2: because for a quantitative kind of research then you set the survey and you do it right you do it systematically and there's less space to say oh fundamentally have we actually asked the correct question right because the survey is out already so um yeah probably a combination would be good i mean we also would like to know uh know what other researchers with their methodologies know what kind of conclusions they are drawing but um, we're happy the way how we've done our research and i think we have uncovered really interesting stories and try to understand no, motivation systems and so on.
0: So you came up with three key themes, didn't you? The implications of the border crossings. Um, the first one you talked about materialities of travel and then routines. And and then um, this which you, Joe, earlier mentioned, this tiredness and exhaustion. So those are the the three, aren't they?
1: For one of our particular papers, I think, um, yeah, whether you could say those are the themes for the project as a whole, um, right. But we certainly identified for, for for one of our papers, we um, yeah, we identified those themes as we they struck us as as particularly yeah important. I think to this particular situation.
2: Yeah, we, yep. have, uh, we have done a f- couple of other papers and a couple of papers coming up, for example, uh, one would be more on mapping out the mobility industry, how we call it. So, uh, Joe was saying how, you know, these kids... like oh, you also say, John, just now, right? These small kids and the big bus. and yeah. uh, So, you know, this person of a guardian, you know, along the way. The parents cannot, right? Because they don't cross the border with the kids. The kids. So, you have this mobility industry that... Arises. And you have these women who actually escort small children, of course, we're talking about the older ones, they are, you know, they do it themselves, no problem. But the small ones, you know, with uniform, they're all, you know, very obedient, they stand in line. And then you have these nanny, they call, who ex- escort them, you know, uh, across the border, make sure that they're safe, make sure, you know, when the weather is horrible, you know, they have a place to stand under the roof and stuff. Um, so, you know, for example, one of our papers coming up will be on mobility infrastructure, you know, who are involved. You know, the bus companies, the nannies, you know, how it is also a, a business, right, as a livelihood also for many people. Uh, another paper, we're looking at uh, the role of the school you know, as a place and also the digital space, how, you know, uh, how these young people and the parents experience inclusion-exclusion. So indeed, no. I think quite a few themes have emerged, and uh, you know, the particular paper that we're we're uh, talking about in in, in uh, the coming up, yeah, we have identified those those uh, three themes, um, yeah, and I think they are important uh, themes yeah, that, um, that we yeah, have. Yeah, I think we've
1: aspects. we've touched upon the materiality side quite a bit, and Maggie just mentioned that as well, mm-hmm. um, and that you know actually this is where photographs are quite useful for for listeners to kind of actually get to visualize you know what, what border looks like mm. um because it is very hard if if I can put it like that you know there's a lot of infrastructure around it um and yeah the, just the role of the buses and the the, the um the border guards and the the, the documents that the, the young people have to carry and so on and so on yeah um the, the issue of routine that you mentioned, John, um, it, it, as Maggie mentioned, it, it, it's a way of life, actually, for many of these children. It is exhausting, but it was something that they just do, and they do it every day, uh, five days a week. And I think it uh, only works because it is it has become part of a daily routine. Uh, they, they set their alarm for a particular time. You know, the, the mum gets up before the children, usually and prepares lunch and, and and prepares their breakfast gets their clothes ready and then we had we had one mum saying about how the child's basically you know brushing <laughs> brushing his teeth while he's virtually asleep because he's so tired <laughs> um and then he kind of rouses takes his breakfast goes on the bus um but yeah i think because we're dealing with in some cases quite young children there needs to be this routine i think the whole thing would collapse if these families hadn't found a kind of way of routinizing uh this practice and yeah of course that links to our third point about tiredness and exhaustion most of our interviews with families at some point talk about this um say that it's extremely tiring you know and uh it's um it's tiring in the sense that they wake up early and they go to bed late. (laughs) It's tiring and arduous in that they spend a lot of time traveling and traveling is tiring. You know, they're on a bus for often several hours every single day. Um, And also they don't get a lot of downtime. You know, the children especially don't get much time to play with their friends because they're either traveling to school, in school, traveling back and then usually doing some homework or some sort of activity, structured activity before they go to bed. Yeah. And that, that is their kind of weekday routine. And, you know, that kind of adds up to an air of exhaustion, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah. What's the length of travel? What's the longest length of travel that students might have to make? I
1: think we have read, um, and now I
2: don't remember our data exactly, but I think we've read up to four hours
1: I think we have
0: six, each I way.
2: Four.
1: Yeah, no. because I, I think, I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think, on average, we're talking the families that we talk to about two to three. Because yeah, but you I have would... to, you have to factor in the, you know, they have to um, get from their home to the bus they often have to wait for the bus and they have to get on the bus then they're on the bus at the border they have to disembark not always there are there are occasions where they can stay on the bus and be scanned on the bus then they disembark and they get back on the bus (laughs) then they go to school so the whole thing does usually take several hours um to get to school and then the same obviously the same on the way back to go back Mm, yeah
2: I think we've read that up to four hours, but I think in our
1: interview, it's in more think like, uh, three yeah. was probably the maximum. Yeah, it depends
2: very much, you know, like, uh, and, and for kids who are, you know, picked up, there are also these cross-boundary buses who actually pick up the kids. And there are neighbourhoods, you no, know, in Shenzhen where there are lots of these kids. And so they will be picked up and then more or less, you know, driven over and that there are these special channels for these kind of buses. where the kids don't have to get off bus anymore for a few years already both the shenzhen and the hong kong officials will will, they will come on the bus but twice to check um their their you know their papers and then they can move on um but for people yeah for kids who have to do multiple transits um, then it just takes long
1: yeah because of course the bus thing is is these kind of formal organized you know bus companies that 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 transport the children the older children often get there on their own steam you know so they'll use public transport they'll cross the border by foot they'll then use public transport the other side or they may get picked up I think we we did hear some stories Maggie didn't we of people getting picked up by family members so there might be multiple you know modes of transport there are
2: multiple things and people you know of course you're also buying Combine these kind of mobilities, you know, for other other purposes, right? I mean, kids, you know, when they're older, they also, you know, go to have some fun, you know. I mean, of course, they are tired, but um, but they also have their youth, no, in a particular way, and they hang out, you know, they have fun also, they play their whatever game, watch or whatever on the way, uh, they socialize with their peers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it is it is they are tired, but you know how it is. You no, know? people are also resilient and uh, try to make the best out of it, so to say, you know.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, that what well, one thing we did notice when we were at, at the border ourselves, but also f- from the accounts, is how how young people use the time traveling. It's not just dead time. You know, they do use it often to do homework or to socialise <laughs> or to you know sing songs or to. I mean, we saw lots of children hanging out, didn't we, in the kind of on the concourse, yeah. either playing on their phones yeah. um, or just chatting. Just yeah. chatting and yeah. relaxing, yeah. Um, so this time the time spent traveling is tiring, but it's also time where they kind of exercise their agency to a certain extent as well away from family members
2: what's important not to romanticize this is um, obviously you not know, because they' are tired lots of time on to travel um, that leads to certain uh, yeah sort of social inclusion exclusion you know you know how it played out. no. For example, these kids cannot, we've talked to teachers, there were well, these CBS kids that usually uh, don't stay for sport, like school teams um, training, because they just cannot. And of course, obviously we know, right, if you're in a sport team, that means you no know, sense of belonging, that means identity. And these are the kind of stuff that is softer, it's not so important at school. So parents, or they just, you know, these kids cannot accommodate, you know, in their busy life. Um, and so these are not to be romanticized, of course. No, these are areas where I say, okay, you know, can we really say total inclusion of these kids? So that's one of the paper that uh, we've been ri- we are writing and finalizing now is to really try to think of inclusion, exclusion in a more um, um, more differentiated way, right? Yes, these kids are in the school. Yeah, yes, they take all the classes and take the exam and maybe they would do well in the A levels or whatever or equivalent. Uh, but what about you no know, the other social and you know. Being, being in a school, being in a community in these other different ways. You know? Or this um, quote-unquote accusation, right? Yeah, these kids, they always you know, they get in a clique, these CBS kids, they're in a clique. But if you think about how, as I said, you know, they spend time with their CBS peers for hours every day in and out of, the, you know, and then they become friends. So yeah, you know, they are in a clique, but how to understand these in a more systemic uh, sort of way, you no, know, uh, is important. Mm-hmm but not to take away the age Anything from the, from the kids.
0: In, in the areas where they go back to, is there anything that, this isn't part of your research really, so this is just a question, but the sorts of clubs or youth clubs or socializing over the weekend because that's the only time they've got. Does that happen? Is there that sort of support for them?
2: Um, as far as, I don't know about a youth club so much, but for sure this extracurriculum uh, learning huh? that is also uh, very much value, right, in in the Chinese East Asian, I would say, you know, uh, culture where kids also learn. Right? They learn an instrument, they learn to do sport, they learn drawing. And a lot of these extracurricular activities will take place, uh, usually not after school because it's quite late. So it will be on the weekends, definitely. And what we have mm-hmm. observed also is um, there are also these, you know, business, no? Uh, the, uh, Hong Kong-based companies or tutor centers they you know set up a branch in shenzhen so they could offer let's say drawing like in hong kong you know or playing instrument learn in a hong kong way you know so there is this uh, mobility business as part of that too but for sure parents invest as much as they can know in these kids for school but also all these extracurricular um stuff you know that might include as you said youth clubs but i also a lot of times about learning you know, sort of picking up other cultural capital uh, whenever time and money is allowed.
0: Uh, despite all the tiredness, I'm assuming that the, the questions that you've put and the answers that you've had back from the students are that they would prefer it this way, they would prefer to make all that travel. Is that how they feel about it?
1: We, I, mean, we, we've, we've, I think we've talked to people that have said both, so some that have said, yeah, you know, it was tiring, But I'm glad that it's gone this way. We have had families that have just stopped doing it, though. You know, they just couldn't take it anymore. Mm. Um, And and have had to invest in um, school, you know, financially invest in putting their child into school in Shenzhen. We had a couple, Maggie, didn't we? At least a couple of families Yeah,
2: yeah. But this minority, I would say, in the system, because, I mean, going beyond our own interviewees, what I know is that, um, yeah... Because, you know, because of all these, uh, they be always repeatedly, you know, sort of uh, revision of policy, you know, what is allowed, what is not. And some of the kids are now allowed to go to public school in Shenzhen, mm. you know, But it doesn't attract a lot of families to go back because most of them will see this as, as uh, yeah, worthwhile investment. You know, all the pain and all the money that involved. Yeah. Yeah. What we've also heard is, of course, you know, in Hong Kong, there's been a lot of uh, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, let's say, you know, there's been a lot of uh, yeah, things happening, you know, also, you know, politically and, uh, and we've heard uh, from my follow-up interviews that some parents start thinking, you know, like uh, uh, maybe, you know, it's just too complicated to have kids in Hong Kong and maybe learning the wrong ideas, you know, some of them may say, you know, we'll keep our child here. But it's, it's very dynamic um, and uh, it's hard to have a generalized I think uh answer to to that there are there are people who are going more and more you know going to Hong Kong and there are also some returning there are also you know people who say it's worth it uh, but I mm-hmm. think if you talk about the the students themselves um i don't yeah I think they would they would mostly say yeah that's that's my life, and i you know and I've learned you know I've also accumulated yeah. Uh, capital, not in these languages, of course, no? I've learned and yeah, that's, that's how it is. I mean, from the few yeah, interviews we had with older students, I think they look back and say, yeah, I know it was not easy, but definitely, you know, I have something different. I've learned, I'm an independent you know, and I'm a cross-border person. And I think that was very striking from that one interview we mentioned earlier, how, you know, this university uh, student, when he looked back, he said, yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a cross-border child. You know, I'm a cross-border person. I grew up across the border, and then he see he saw that really as a, something as a as a capital. No? There's something that he has uh, positive. It's his,
1: it's his identity. It was very. He couldn't. He couldn't separate off in easily. Him himself and how he identified. Yeah,
2: himself. yeah. And then he oh. was telling us that you know it's so much part of him that you know when he think about what to do, he's a business student. He said, well, you know. Uh, when I think of my yes. own, you know, business, you no, know, he was running this and that business, and it's always about cross-border, right? Yeah. So you know, you have you have young people growing up in in that space, uh, and that is their life space. That's also where their their future
1: visions and aspirations, are, you know, sort of grow out of. I think just talking about the the kind of research that's been done on uh, student mobility as a whole, that, that that is a pattern, you know, students that are mobile for education are more likely to be mobile later in their lives, mobile for their careers, you know, and they're mm. more likely to, to see mobility as a possibility or something that is advantageous, something that they desire and that they right. see.
0: Will the politics change it? You, you talked about it being dynamic. and um, Yeah. That's right enough. I hadn't, and I hadn't really thought about it till you started speaking about it there, but it, it, it is going through some dramatic change. When I was there, uh, I was in the middle of some student protests. We took Team UK to the International Geography Olympiad at the university up on the hill. We decided it wasn't safe to take the students down, but I thought, well, I'll, I'll have a wander down and, and get the ferry across the harbour. And it was a nightmare getting back they were all very polite, but everything closed down. I couldn't get a bus. I couldn't get a train. I was stuck for a bit, mm. uh, and and things haven't resolved. It's mm. uh, it's uh, quite a well as you say. It's a, it's a fluid and and quite worrying. I think I don't know how that's going to affect. How you think it might affect the students and their well,
2: post- we already seeing there is this again, not like more interest in moving away, you know? like uh, some of family migration, but uh, sending kids to, away to school is often one, the first step, right? The, that, uh, okay. So if we want to go back to our very beginning about international student mobility, you do see, I mean, Hong Kong is a place like in Taiwan and South Korea has been a place with you know, a lot of these kind of aspiration to send kids overseas. But now with the political situation, of course, you know, it's uh, one, more, you know, one more factor for many families and young people to see that as also the most probably the most achievable way yeah if we want to say okay you know with some how do we invest this our mobility you know then you know to the kids and going to school or university Mm -hmm. would be one of the one of the way to go and then yeah there's nothing I mean it is obvious that now there is a lot more interest and now we see this sort of you know the boom of all these migration agency again you know you see advertisement everywhere and no? all and how to go when
1: where it's like a repeat of what happened in the yeah. late 80s you know yeah. Ab- yeah. Ab- ab- early yeah. 2000s where yeah. I mean um yeah where many many Hong Kong families were emigrating to yeah. Canada the US Australia yeah. Yeah. but as Maggie mentioned you know children's education was kind of at the forefront of you know the putting their child in mm-hmm. school or university in one of those countries was a yeah. kind
2: of first step. Yeah, so it's very much like in
1: the early 80s, so
2: all the way into later on. Um, but of course, the world has changed. You know? we're, we're, this is happening uh, in the world where uh, education has been you know, much more internationalized than, than before right I mean if you're thinking about you know there's a lot of uh, student mobility or young people children mobility also but you know much earlier education um, yeah so you know there's a lot more these kind of uh, options you know if you if you turn on these social media you see these ah you know how to go to Germany how to go to you know Austria how you know how to go to the UK after Brexit whatever now there are lots of sort of Seems the possibilities are more because also the social media is as you know, like the world is more open, seems like. And now of course with the UK having that BNO passport allowing families to go, you know. So so we are seeing also these different, you know, policy changes that would and I th-
1: and I think have an impact well,
2: too. Yeah.
1: Oh totally. I was gonna say families because of the way the world's changed, perhaps don't see migration as permanent as much anymore. So they mm-hmm. can go temporarily, they can go yeah. for a few years. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean that they're there forever. Um, I think yeah. there's a kind of sense of of, of families yeah. being able to just take a bit of time <laughs> for you know to see what happens they can
2: yeah yeah you're right there's been so many also presidents right you have friend stories yes you no know, they went to canada they came back a lot more fluid a lot more yeah a lot a lot more like this I can try it out
1: yeah you know? and I can so migration
2: many- has become a different thing over the last decades obviously yeah and and when you have to push now from Hong Kong, uh, it's no surprise, you know, that people, there are many, many families, who are trying to, you know, uh, at least to say, okay, no, how how can I how can I get out quickly if if we think we need
0: to. So. I think I'll have to check my facts on this. I'm not might not be quite right, but uh, I think all of Team USA two years ago at the International Geography Olympiad were from Hong Kong, which surprised our team. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> what they were expecting. No, but of course, this year we uh, it was cancelled last year, and this year we're going to have to have uh, the International Olympiad online because of COVID. So I thought I'd ask you about the just the the impact of, of COVID on student mobility now, and what have you seen in the last well, eighteen months? It is really, huh?
2: maybe I can say just a few few things that obvious, almost obvious that uh, on the young children or the you know the cross border um, students. Um, of course, in in the border between Hong Kong and Shenzhen is like any international border. It was also closed you know, for a long time. And uh, that had tremendous impact, obviously, on the students. You know, they cannot come to school, like, they could not come to school. Uh, and then afterwards, school was also closed. Huh? So, you know, so soon enough, you know, they became okay, and nobody could go to school. So. But there's always this transit, tran- transit period where only the CBS could not come to school. So that is of course uh, one issue and all these checks you know and there were a lot of discussion, a lot of policies, special conditions you know uh, that okay kids can allow allow to cross and what do we check them? Are they, you know of course they don't have to go in a quarantine, otherwise it will not work. So you know on that level there's a lot of these kind of border related issues. but what's interesting of course is also uh, this online learning right when when all the kids are doing homeschooling, then uh, in Hong Kong, it's a very digital world, you know, much more than in Europe, I would say. So they, were, they could very quickly, they were very equipped, they could quickly move a lot of things online and do you know, like real time online learning all day kind of. Um, but internet is first of all, not, um, not everything is open. Uh, on the mainland side. So in, in Hong Kong, for example, schools were using certain portal, they were putting things on Google and Google is not always accessible in Shenzhen. And all these, you know, uh, the sort of the borders in the internet, in the web space became a very big issue. You know? so, uh, some some teachers said that, you know, they have not actually been able to get in touch with their students on the mainland side for weeks. You know? uh, so, so there are also these kind of uh, uh, yeah, being stuck uh, there differently than being stuck when you're in Hong Kong. And some families actually push their kids back to Hong Kong because they're in, you know, the year before the sort of like the A-level equivalent exam. So they thought, you know, we should we must make sure our kid is in Hong Kong or our older mm-hmm. kid. And these young people then, you know, they were staying in some boarding house or some families, relatives for months. So there are many, many different kinds of family and uh, stories during the COVID time, uh, quite complex, I guess.
1: I can just say a few words as well about um, just what is, has come out, you know, some people have done studies on international student mobility more broadly, so not specifically about that, that, that border. Um, but there is a suggestion that going forward, your international students will be more concerned with issues of safety, some of that will be around you know ideas around pandemic and that kind of thing but also you know uh, attached to kind of racism and uh, racial violence and discrimination and prejudice and which we've seen a lot of um as, as a consequence of covid you know mm-hmm. students particularly chinese students being Thank targeted students. um so i think there is a sense that i think students will be more aware of or have at, at, in the back of their minds issues around sort of bodily safety and security, and as a consequence, early suggestions are that students might be more prepared to move regionally, so within the region, so they might be a lot more, for example, take Asia, intra-regional uh, mobility of students between you know Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Taiwan, mainland China, rather mm-hmm. than students moving completely out of their region mm. um, because because you know if there's another lockdown if there's another pandemic which of course there may well be um, or there are other issues with border closures or students can get out more easily they can get home more easily mm. back to their families more easily um, so i think um, these various lockdowns that students have experienced as a result of covid have kind of almost highlighted the geography and um, the, the the need sometimes for students to, to be closer to home than maybe they would have been previously. Yeah, there is indeed a, quite some discussion about safety.
2: I mean, real safety, yeah. right? Because of course, Europe and the US um, were seen at, you know, in Asia, in East Asia as sort of you know, not being able to cope with this very well. And so you have actually like Hong Kong, Singapore, they're actually doing ma- place marketing in that sense of, hey, look, you know, we've been able to, you know, to also keep everybody rather, you know, safe, you know, during the COVID pandemic, look at, you know, the old world, you know, they are not <laughs> really dealing with it all right. So, um, yeah, so I, I think it's expected, you know, that there will be some, some new, new dynamics again in the geographies, how international education will, will pan out. And there's a lot of marketing going on now, I think, also for ha- uh, university students, you know, high-ranking, mm. Asia-based universities, why do you need to go to the US, right? That kind of discussion is being heard, you yeah. know.
0: New Zealand as well. Watch out their space. <laughs> Look, we haven't got any COVID. Come yeah, in Australia,
2: New Zealand, right? So safe and so, you know, in a feeling closer uh, by, you know, uh, from Asia. Quite interesting. They think about geographies of, uh, of this international
0: education system. So, where next with your research?
2: Just now, when Joe was talking about these sort of, you know, uh, corona-related races, I mean, it's not a, it's not a huge project, but it's been, uh, you know, I've, because of the COVID situation, I applied for some small seed grant from my uh, from my university, and I did a small project interviewing Asian appearance young people and uh, in the Netherlands, um, and uh, you know, uncovering experiences of uh, discrimination. But what I find very interesting in this small project is uh, how I get connected to the. The people who are active in in action, so we have you know also uh, made a short video. Uh, we are engaged in this you know sort of anti Asian, hate uh, mm. uh, activists work here. So that's something that is related to student mobility. Although you know we didn't only uh, talk to students, but of course no, you think about you no. Know, there are a lot of injustice and during the COVID time, it's just so Mm -hmm. crystallized and, and, you know, from Black Lives Matter to anti-Asian hate uh, and, you know, with this because of the social media being, you know, so instant and so connected. So uh, there's a lot going on in in activism and I think our research in different ways, you know, are are connected um, to these kind of issues going on.
1: Yes. I'm currently editing a book on migration and family and maggie has a chapter it's i'm editing it with brenda yo who's at nus in singapore and we have a lot of fantastic um chapters on different aspects of migration and family and education certainly is coming up as um as an important theme in this editor. and maggie has not delivered yet so maggie (laughs) (laughs) will get to do her homework (laughs) No,
2: You're but keep me. watching. We'll have different new projects coming up. Yeah, we will. So we will stay in touch with our listeners
1: and with you, John, <laughs> of course.
0: <laughs> well, that's excellent because it's, it's been fascinating preparing for this. When I started, I knew very little and uh, I've really enjoyed reading about it. And it's been wonderful chatting to you two today. It's, uh, it's taught me an awful lot.
2: Yeah, I'm curious, of course. No? Uh, the, I, I, as we speak, I don't know who the listeners will be, but I will be very, very happy or we, I'm sure Joe also, if we can get feedback uh, yeah. from the listeners oh. and then we can keep the conversation going. That would be very nice.
0: Yes. It's largely for teachers. Mm. I did say to Joe earlier, um, if I was still teaching A-Level, there'd be some that I'd unpick and I'd play little snippets mm-hmm. to students. And I think they they get a lot out of that as well as the teachers who are listening. So that's brilliant. Thank you very much for doing Jogpod with us. Thank you very much.
2: Great. Thanks, John. Thank you.